0: You're listening to the ERLC podcast. The holiday is Louisiana, is
1: the. I keep forgetting the. I'm just concerned with the way you say Louisiana. Why, why are you? Why are you concerned about? it, it sounds like say not, Louisiana. It sounds like it's not coming out right. Just like Tuesday. deep.
2: Don't start with me. This is what people are here for.
1: As 2020 comes to a close, we're thankful for the role we've been able to play in your lives. We're thankful that we get to assist churches by helping them apply the gospel to moral and ethical questions of the Christian life, and by speaking from our churches as a witness to the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations we receive apart from that goes to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers and advocating for religious liberty and human dignity here at home and across the globe. Please consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com backslash donate.
2: Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co host Lindsay Nicolay.
0: Lindsay's internet dropped (laughs) right in this moment where this is the one thing that she has to do every week, and she's gone.
1: Hello from the Wi-Fi apocalypse happening at my house. My internet is just not working today. And y'all are Guys, making me could've. grumpy as I start this podcast.
2: <laughs> I wish our listeners could experience the the pain and frustration that has come along with trying to uh, start this podcast over Lindsay's Wi-Fi. Uh, but also with us is our, uh, you told me not to call him faithful, but I'm going to call him ever faithful once more, uh, our ever faithful
0: companion, co-host, Brent Leatherwood. Hey, y'all. And Lindsay, I just want to say, you should wear your internet meltdown as a badge of honor, because that happened recently to both our guest today, David French and Josh, and one of uh, a favorite for Josh and me, Jonah Goldberg. They both recently have had catastrophic failures on their internet, and so like you, you're with them. You're in the pantheon of heroes. You're, you,
1: yeah, internet yeah. meltdown is a sign of greatness. Exactly, exactly. You're going
0: to so. be on the Mount Rushmore of internet meltdowns.
1: Yeah, and I still disagree that you are ever faithful. You know, you've missed this podcast more than anyone, so I would like a new title assigned to Brent. I missed it twice,
0: and and y'all are,
2: (laughs) you're you're like roasting me. (sighs) Well, I I will work on that. Um, Hopefully, uh, later in the show today, we are going to have a chance to talk to David French about his new book, Divided We Fall, and we're really excited about that conversation. But Lindsay, so we can get into it, and maybe before your internet drops out again, tell us what the RLC's been talking about this week.
1: You stole my line. I was going to say, "Okay, people, let's get to this before uh, we have another internet disaster." The first resource that I'm eager to share with you is especially exciting because we uh, it coincides with a new ebook we just launched. So, Jared Kennedy, who is our family and parenting channel editor, has an article titled Two Foundational Truths to Teach Our Kids About Gender: Celebrating Who God Created Us to Be." And this is such an important issue. Especially in our uh, confused culture where, sadly— uh, people truly are struggling with who God has created them to be, as male and female, and and largely too, people are struggling because we live in a secular culture that does not recognize uh, our Creator's authority, and that that authority and His design is good. So Jared has put together uh, this article, but it actually comes from an ebook that you can download for free this week only, and then after this week, it is. which still is pretty inexpensive. And it's called A Parent's Guide to Teaching Your Children About Gender. And as of our recording today, we've had over 800 downloads so far. So it is obviously something that all of us are wrestling with, that we want to be equipped to be able to handle and to be able to treat in a way that honors the Lord. We want to be able to speak uh, rightly and truthfully about it. Uh, So I would encourage you, the link is in the show notes, to download it before the price changes and to get your free copy.
2: Yeah, I don't know how to tell you how pumped I am about this Jared, we talk about him. We've talked about him several times in the podcast. He's incredible, and to know that you know almost a thousand people have loaded uh, this so far, this is going to be a resource that is going to be extremely helpful for parents trying to navigate tough issues
0: about gender and sexuality with their kids. Yeah, big kudos uh, to to Jason Thacker, you Lindsay, Marie Delf uh, on our team uh, who have helped steward this much needed uh, piece of, of content to you know. Reality here, because parents obviously need. I mean, this thing is this thing is flying off the virtual bookshelf, uh, and so I'm I'm just really thankful, and that means it's timely and needed. And as a parent, I'm looking forward to reading it myself.
1: Yes, and again, I have to give the credit to Jason and Marie. I really didn't have much to do with this. I did skim it, and it is um, a great, helpful, and short resource. So it's very doable, very approachable. So grab your copy today. Next up, we have an article by Annie Cratch, and she uh, is continuing to talk about Advent. As we've talked about Advent during the season, the first Sunday of Advent was the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. And she has an article about three practical Advent practices to meet you in your suffering, simple activities for your family from the unexpected gift. So Annie talks about how She hadn't uh, realized her need for Advent until her family was thrust into a difficult season where she was dealing with some um, special needs of her child and just realized how important Advent is to lament with hope and to realize and recognize our need for a Savior. And she and her sister also realized that uh, sometimes it's difficult to maintain Uh, practices if your goals are too lofty. So they put together this resource called Unexpected Gift. It's got some ways that you can participate in Advent with your children using sustainable practices. So I would encourage you to read her article. She just gives three practical examples from her own life. She picks very small things to do. Her family tries to slow down They try to do one day from unexpected gift, the resource that her and her sister developed, and they try to shut down early, which are just really practical. All of us could maybe apply that in this season because all of us need to quiet our hearts and recognize that we truly are in need of saving, and we truly are called to anticipate the return of our Savior.
2: I think that's really great, Lindsay. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought this year to— trying to cultivate some new Advent practices with my own family. One of the things uh, that we did that was totally an accident and something I'm planning to continue doing is, you know, we have all of these, uh, manger scenes around our home. And we even have like a, you know, a little, uh, toy version of it. That's, that sits at the base of our tree that our daughter plays with all the time, but we don't ever take the time uh, until recently to just use that as a way to illustrate the Christmas story. And so uh, that that was one thing that uh, was, you know, not a difficult thing to do. But during the season of Advent, while we have all of these decorations up, uh, just to take that and try to explain it, even to a three-year-old, to help her understand what it means that Jesus came, that he was born, uh, and, and that God's son came for us. That's, you know, I think this is a really important time for families to try to reinforce even some of those basic truths.
1: And like you said, it's going to change with the age and uh, whatever's happening with your children and your family life. But still, we can we can recognize um, Advent in our homes, and Annie has given us some practical ways to do that. And then finally, we highlighted an article by um, C. Ben Mitchell last week. And this is the second part of it, which is is important. And it's titled, What Defines Personhood? The Distinct Difference of Humans. And so if you remember last week, He educated us about the fact that the question, the main question in the abortion debate these days is not when does human life begin, but what constitutes personhood. And so in this article, he's talking about what defines personhood, and he talks about what sets humans apart from angels, from animals, from other things. And of course, we know that that we're made in God's image, but his article— will equip you to be able to have these conversations with your neighbors, maybe with your family members, um, with those you encounter, and to be able to defend the value and dignity of everybody's life.
2: Yeah, this is definitely a series that people uh, really should pay attention to because, again, it's taking you to the center of the controversy surrounding the abortion debates going on in our culture right now because we talked about last week how people are no longer disagreeing about whether the life in the womb is a human being, but they're trying to say that it's not yet a person because a person – and they try to attribute or or demand that to attain personhood, you have to be able to do certain things. You know, you have to have uh, certain abilities or capabilities and – what Dr. Mitchell is doing in this series is helping you understand what personhood really is, which, according to the Bible, is it's an ontology. It's, it's, it's what it means to be something, and every member of the human race is created in the image of God, and every member of the human race is, is a person. Because what God creates humanity to be uh, are these embodied creatures, these embodied souls. And so uh, this is a really excellent article. It's one that I would really encourage you to check out because he takes such a difficult or, or potentially complex topic and makes it so accessible and easy to understand. And it also equips you to have important conversations with people in your life who, who might not understand this, uh, these concepts, or who might have questions about why uh, you would hold to pro-life convictions.
1: Well, and with our articles, too, if you scroll down to the bottom after reading through the article, we have other articles there that it will pull up that are related. So that can help you to explore the topic further. So that's just a little trick if you're checking out articles on our site. So Josh and Brent, that is your look at what's happening on ERLC.com.
2: Hey, thanks, Lindsay. That brings us to the
0: culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. All right. Thanks for that, Josh and Lindsay. Okay. I want to start by asking you both a question. Do you know the name Margaret Keenan? Either of you got anything? Do you know Margaret Keenan? Now we do. I'm stumped, man. I don't know. There you go. Well, you should, because she's the first person to receive the newly authorized COVID vaccine over in the United Kingdom. Mm
2: -hmm. I watched the
0: interview she did. It was awesome. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, y'all need to remember this because it, it inevitably will be a part of a future Jeopardy! showdown. So uh, the UK started vaccinating its population against COVID-19 this week, becoming the first country to start distributing the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine less than a week after its approval. It is being given to elder care home workers, and people over the age of 81st, according to the outlet MIT Technology Review. And so she is, for clarification, we should point out, because this is a, a helpful thing for folks to know, she is the first individual to receive it outside of a clinical trial. And that's just a good reminder that, in fact, thousands upon thousands of people have been given Uh, these vaccines that are in these clinical trials to talk about their quality and safety and assure all that for those of us in the general public uh, who will soon have access to these vaccines. And apparently today is question day because I'm following up my first question with a second one. Josh, Lindsay, do you know who William Shakespeare is? Oh, Bill. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't he number two? Yeah, exactly. William Shakespeare was number two? No, not not the poet. Uh, so the BBC writes this uh, because this is just you know rife with puns left and right. If you're William Shakespeare getting a vaccine in 2020, uh, so not the writer, poet, and playwright, but his 81 year old namesake. This Mr. Shakespeare was the second person to be given a jab, and guess what? He also comes from Warwickshire. Much ado about nothing? It doesn't matter. All's well that ends well. Is this a needle which I see before me? The present day Shakespeare could have asked, but his reaction was a little bit less, well, dramatic. He said he was pleased to be given the shot uh, by the staff at the University Hospital in Coventry and that they had been wonderful. So if Miss Keenan was patient 1A, was Mr. Shakespeare patient? To be or not to be? Okay, I didn't make that up. That was from the BBC. But it's just too good not to read here for our audience.
1: I, feel I just like wanted to you thank you for were... leaning,
0: all, leaning all the way into that.
1: Yes, <laughs> and this is right up your alley. And I feel like you were ghostwriting for them, Brent.
0: Uh, exactly. Well, thank you for recognizing my my literary talents there, Lindsay. I really appreciate that.
1: Um, well, also, do they, just say...
0: call, do they call shots jabs? Is that like a British-like Yes neologism Isn't, or something like in that in that just a wonderful little i i love our our ancestors across the pond for all the the little witty things that they've kept over there in the english no language no kidding i will say this as my own kind of personal gloss on this hopefully when america uh begins vaccinating we will have two courageous individuals like mrs keenan and mr shakespeare as the first up to receive it because america needs Good stories like this uh, to talk about. And it's important uh, because as has been the case over the last several weeks, COVID is raging around the country. The Midwest and Great Plains regions, parts of which have already struggled with overwhelmed hospitals, continue to lead the U.S. with the densest concentration of coronavirus cases, according to Axios. Uh, With winter approaching and widespread vaccination still several months away, the virus is spreading with dangerous ease. In looking at the numbers, over the past week, Indiana, Rhode Island, South Dakota, and Utah racked up an average of at least 100 new cases per day for every 100,000 residents. So we are certainly uh, not in a good place and very much in need of uh, widespread vaccination vaccinations coming. On Tuesday, the U.S. had more people pass away from COVID in one day than the total who were killed on September 11th. And that was followed up on Wednesday with over 3,000 deaths occurring in one day. Those are certainly grim milestones
1: that none of us wanted to see. Some silver linings in the midst of all of this grim news I saw uh, from a pediatrician that I like to follow that the cases of the flu and RSV are down tremendously. So she said that this pediatrician said she has seen no cases of RSV, none. So that is some good news in the midst of all the bad news with all the social distancing and, and mask wearing, um, Thankfully, people haven't had to suffer from those other illnesses.
0: That's certainly a good point, Lindsay. And obviously, if we can cut down on those other issues, uh, maybe that will be a bit of a silver lining in this moment. And so while we all hoped this nightmare would be over by the end of 2020, it's, it's actually starting to affect the plans for next year. So here's one noteworthy development. NPR reports that Mardi Gras is canceled. Parades will be prohibited at New Orleans Mardi Gras celebration in 2021 to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Mayor LaToya Cantrell's office said on Tuesday. Typically marked by parades and parties, the holiday is the Louisiana city's biggest tourism draw. Quote, Mardi Gras is a season of traditions that we celebrate every year, a time that the community comes together in formal, fun, and often unexpected ways, the mayor's office said in a statement. With COVID-19 cases increasing around the country, we will have to modify how to observe this carnival season. So this is important because you may may remember it was uh, the 2020 Mardi Gras that seemed to be the epicenter of the virus outbreak in Louisiana, a particularly hard hit state.
1: This seems like the right decision, Brent. I mean, with Mardi Gras, I wouldn't think that social distancing is something that would be practiced well um, or wisely. So we definitely don't want people to, Be suffering in Louisiana, not Louisiana. How did you say it? Louisiana? I don't even know how you said that word. How do you say it, Brent? Uh,
0: I say it like a native-born son of the South. Louisiana.
1: Well, we certainly don't want people to get sick and uh, suffer from even more COVID right as the hope of the vaccine is on the horizon. So, it is sad. Maybe get some some of your beaded necklaces at home and throw them around. Eat your king cake, but celebrate virtually. You know, I'd never, speaking of Louisiana and Mardi Gras, i had never had king cake until
2: I came to work for the URLC. And because our boss, uh, Dr. Moore, is a proud son of the Gulf region and the way he grew up in Biloxi, Mississippi, is uh, not far at all from New Orleans, he is a big fan of king cake. And... It is it is good. There are you know varieties of king cake, but the shocking thing for those of you who have never had it before is uh, the the feature that is supposed to be hidden inside of it. Lindsay, what is that?
1: A little plastic baby.
2: <laughs> a little plastic baby, which is bizarre, and I'm sure there's a great it backstory is for. Her. Yeah. So we we will uh, we, we may return to that in a future episode.
0: Well, beyond Mardi Gras, the COVID outbreak is also influencing plans for staffing by the incoming Biden administration. Uh, The president-elect will likely start with a, quote, skeleton staff in the West Wing to keep him healthy. After the Trump administration's more cavalier approach to the coronavirus, a White House support staffer familiar with the transition plans told Axios. So why does this matter? The incoming president at 78 is in a high-risk group and already careful to mask up. President Trump and numerous staffers have not necessarily followed safety protocols and have caught COVID-19, meaning there will have to be some sort of deep cleaning for the White House residents and offices before the new team moves in at noon on January 20th. So uh, the the White House, I mean, look, I I think we've seen messaging uh, from the outgoing Trump administration over the last few weeks, and uh, we've certainly seen messaging from the incoming Biden administration, and it's it's going to be uh, it, well, seemingly it, it's going to be a pretty stark difference uh, between the two,
1: and that's probably not where the stark differences will end. <laughs> President Trump was so unconventional in many, many, many ways, and of course, they're different. Um, they have different platforms, so I think we'll see stark differences in in many ways. But I'm glad that this team seems to be taking coronavirus seriously, because uh, that's the kind of leadership that we need.
0: That said, the political world was a buzz this week because the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton decided, in a well, more remarkable move to sue four other states for how they held their elections. They are asking for the court to block the electors from Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, pushing Joe Biden back under the magic 270-vote total to win the Electoral College. So here's how this would in theory play out uh, should Attorney General Paxton's lawsuit be successful. First, the the court would have to allow Paxton to actually file the suit. So you you file a a request with the Supreme Court to actually get permission uh, to proceed with your lawsuit. Then the court would have to block certification of the Electoral College vote, which occurs next week, determine that the four states had allowed massive amounts of, quote, illegal votes, then have the states revisit their vote counts and then resubmit the numbers. Uh, They interviewed a Supreme Court analyst and University of Texas law school professor about this, and his quote was, in a nutshell, the president is asking the Supreme Court to exercise its rarest form of jurisdiction to effectively overturn the entire presidential election. So if you're reading about this, you're probably left with the question, is this likely? The answer is no. As the article points out, the Supreme Court swiftly rejected an emergency request from Pennsylvania Republicans earlier this week to block election results in the Commonwealth. Basically, the Supreme Court doesn't seem to have much appetite to take this up.
2: Yeah, it seems it seems all but certain based on everything that I've read about this and all of the political commentators out there. Uh, the opinion seems almost unanimous that the Supreme Court is not likely to entertain this kind of last ditch effort from Ken Paxton uh, the attorney general of Texas and uh, honestly i mean if i had to guess i would just say that you you could expect that if you do see the supreme court uh rule on this it will likely be a unanimous opinion uh that's that's certainly what i'm expecting but we'll see we'll definitely see what happens it is uh certainly It is certainly bizarre to be a month after the presidential election and still have the
0: results being contested in this way. That is true. Although I will say it was, uh, I mean, it it probably would have occurred a a few days ago, but we're not too far uh, from what happened in 2000 when there was a dispute, obviously, between the campaign of then uh, Texas Governor George W. Bush and former Vice President Al Gore. Uh, So it's not like we're totally out of the the realm of uh you know precedent here uh with these recounts and and court challenges uh but but yes i mean i ideally uh, we will get a resolution to this very soon right it is good
2: to see all of the possible legal uh avenues be exhausted here so that people can know at the end of the day, uh, when we inaugurate uh, a president on January 20th of next year, that they can have confidence that that, is, that person is the rightful and duly elected president. And so uh, there, there is nothing wrong with seeing the process play out here. It just, I think the prospects of, of anything changing, uh, the results that were uh, certified this week in all 50 states, it's incredibly unlikely, as
0: you said earlier. Ultimately, it's important to the lives of Americans that we get this settled because, honestly, things aren't looking great on the economic front. The Associated Press reported this week that the number of people applying for unemployment aid jumped last week to 850,000 individuals, the most since September, which is evidence that companies are cutting more jobs as new virus cases spiral higher. The Labor Department said Thursday that the number of applications increased from 716,000 the previous week. Before the coronavirus paralyzed the economy in March, weakness, weekly jobless claims typically numbered only about 225,000. So uh, as, as this virus uh, just continues to uh, rage in the country, this economic upheaval that we're seeing uh, continues to affect so many lives. And and ultimately, that's the key, right? We got to get this virus under control so that our economy can continue uh, to once again flourish.
1: Yeah, and we heard at the ERLC from one of our pastor friends that we work closely with who is probably going to have to take a pay cut in January due to uh, financial resources being down during COVID. So it's— it's really terrible to see this effect on people. And I imagine it's going to be a while before we see the full effects, not just economically, but on all kinds of things um, of this virus. But you're right, Brent. That's why we need to get it under control.
0: And, I, you know, we probably just need to say a word here how thankful we are for the generosity of Southern Baptists who have continued in their faithful and sacrificial giving to the church, um, the cooperative program. Is still doing incredibly well in in the face of this pandemic, and and so uh, a hear us uh, as as representatives of one of the entities of the SBC, how thankful we are to our listeners uh, who give to the cooperative program, and that's a that's a helpful segue into my next note from Baptist Life. So uh, we're in Lottie Moon season for many of our cooperating churches, and uh, for folks who may not know. Uh, The Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, that is the annual uh, initiative that uh, our sister entity, the International Mission Board, has each year uh, that helps to fund missions all across the globe. And so this was a great note this week from the uh, biblical recorder over in uh, Joshua Wester's homeland of North Carolina. The International Mission Board missionaries and staff pledged over $800,000 to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering through an internal campaign that began September 23rd and ended on November 30th. The campaign, which allowed missionaries and U.S.-based staff to make their pledges confidentially, indicates their high level of commitment to the Revelation 7-9 vision and sets an example for Southern Baptists, said IMB President Paul Chitwood. He went on to say, quote, Our IMB missionaries around the world and our stateside support staff wanted to lead by example as we asked Southern Baptists to give more generously than ever before to get the gospel to the nations, and I'm proud to say that is happening. What an incredible moment uh, here in this time of pandemic and paranoia uh, that uh, something like this was able to, to happen.
1: Sounded like Rhett was excited about that moment as well.
0: Yeah. But not only is Rhett
2: excited about that, but I want to just you know echo that and join in his enthusiasm because look, this is a really really cool thing to see. To the fact that IMB missionaries serving around the world and their support staff here in the states they they sacrificed came together to pledge eight hundred thousand dollars, which just shows you that they are committed uh, to the mission of God. They are committed to the very thing that they are doing right now in the world, and the fact that they would reinvest this money. Uh, because if you know anything about missionaries, missionaries don't make a lot of money. This is not some glamorous lifestyle these people are living across the world. For them to sacrifice and give generously to this cause is so inspiring as a Southern Baptist to to dig deep, even in the midst of this time of of economic hardship, to try to ensure that the gospel continues to go to the ends of the earth. And so I, I am really, really proud of Dr. Chetwood's leadership here, really grateful for our missionaries across the world who really are heroes, and just asking God that that we would, uh, even through this Lottie Moon Christmas offering, be able to send more missionaries to more places in need.
1: Well, and it's just a reminder, as we've talked about before, that um, perhaps— It's in the darkness and the dark times when the light of God's glory shines the brightest and we have the eyes to see it. So uh, He is not stopped and His work is not stopped by a pandemic. And He comes alongside His people and displays His heart for the nations in the midst of suffering. And um, a verse that I was thinking about recently was, you know, a light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is just a picture of that, that, the gospel Because of our God, we'll move forward, and we can be confident in that and somehow rest in that in the midst of hardship.
0: All right. So the Toronto Star reports this week from the World of Astronomy, uh, it's a cosmic coincidence said to have not been seen since medieval times. On December 21st, which is also the date of the winter solstice, the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn will appear to align in the night sky, occurring as a single ultra bright light in a rare event known as the Christmas star. This, of course, depends on a forecast of clear skies. It's known as a great conjunction, and while it technically occurs every 19 and a half years, scientists say the last time the two planets were this close to each other would have been in 1623. And I I actually noticed this the other night. I didn't know that this was going to happen, but uh, Anna Lee and Presley Grace, if y'all remember from an earlier episode, we were out uh, early one morning looking at some uh like a meteor shower and we noticed uh the night before that you could see jupiter and saturn together and i didn't realize they were they were getting close like this and um it's gonna occur right around christmas how do y'all feel about that i feel like that's a that's a nice little merry note tis the season lindsay
1: so we'll be able to see that with our just our own eye not a telescope
0: Yes, you you can see the two planets at night, but if you have uh, just a basic telescope, they're even saying that you can likely see the moons of Jupiter, which is crazy to me.
1: That is wild. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Searching for Christmas by J.D. Greer. Meet the awesome God at the heart of the familiar Christmas story. This book is perfect for giving to unbelieving friends and family this Christmas. Find out more at thegoodbook.com.
2: So now we're about to talk to our friend David French. Uh, David is an attorney. He is a political commentator. He is an author and a senior editor at the new – outfit The Dispatch, which has been going for around a year now. We're excited to talk to David today about his new book, which is called Divided We Fall, uh, that kind of surveys the American landscape. And he he has some really interesting uh, ideas in this book that I think are really important. And so we're looking forward to this conversation today. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're really excited to talk to you. As we're getting started, would you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of your life?
3: Yeah. So, Uh, Currently, I mean, professionally, I'm a a senior editor at The Dispatch, which is a new conservative media uh, startup. Uh, I'm a columnist for Time Magazine. Most recently, I was a um, a senior writer for National Review. And before that, I was a lawyer. I was a constitutional litigator for Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, among others. I'm also a veteran, uh, served in Operation Iraqi Freedom during the surge in Iraq. Uh, so I've done a, a, a few things as I tell people, I, I guess I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, uh, on the more important, uh, area of life. I am, um, a member at Christ community church in Franklin, Tennessee, a PCA church, sorry Baptists, but I was predestined, uh, to be Presbyterian. but
1: <laughs>
3: well, we're so glad to have you here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. And I am a, a husband, father of three kids and coming Monday, um, I first grandbaby. So uh, there's a lot going on. And uh, as far as what is God teaching me right now? Uh, that's a long answer to that question. But I would say one of the things that I'm learning a lot about in the pandemic is the power of virtuous leadership and power of malicious leadership. Uh, they both have immense power.
1: So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So can you tell us what things in culture that you and those around you are paying attention to right now?
3: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I pay an awful lot of attention to, um, even though I'm a political columnist, I pay an awful lot of attention to political and legal columnist and podcaster. I pay an awful lot of attention to pop culture. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the old adage that uh, politics is downstream from culture. And so that if we actually want to ultimately impact the heart of this country, it's it's a cultural impact through our religious faith and much less a political impact. Now, I do believe that politics can impact culture. There's a bit of a give and take there, but I think culture is far more important than politics and then politics often reflects our culture. And so, um, you know, I I pay an awful lot of attention to what is it that people are watching? You know, what is it that people are listening to? You know, and and here's the funny thing about that. I'm actually more encouraged by pop culture than I am by politics. I I believe, and it's it's interesting to me, I think that what is resonating with people in this time culturally is really different than what's resonating with a lot of people politically. I'll give you a great example. And I don't know if you guys have seen this show yet. I mean, care uh, warning if you are listening and you're considering a show, it's got language issues and things like that. But it's got a show called Ted Lasso on Apple TV+. It is one of the most heartwarming, uh, joy-inducing shows I have seen in a long time. And it is taking people by storm right now. And the contrast between the toxicity of politics and the really the best way I would describe that show is it's joyful and gracious. Like and and not like cheap grace, but like real grace, you know, and it's so good. And so, you know, things like that they are there's an interesting dichotomy in it and one of the things that tells me is that in some ways I think people are looking for a a bit of relief, <laughs> a bit of happiness. And that's maybe somewhat promising.
2: I'm actually happy to hear you uh, mention that. We have several several folks on our team that recommend anything that has any kind of European flavor to it at all. And so I'm always reticent to jump in on that, but to, but to hear the endorsement, is that's definitely something I'll check out.
0: That, that, that helps certainly make uh, me want to uh, uh, to watch it as well. One thing I know that uh, I'm excited about from you that I've just recently finished reading is your new book, uh, Divided We Fall. It is an incredible resource, and, and I'm just grateful, David, that we get to talk to you a little bit about it today. Uh, So one of the central themes in your book has to do with division and the disunity that marks America as a nation right now. Uh, So what would you say are some of the factors that have led to these fissures? And furthermore, what can we do as a nation and as Christians to attain a a more unified society?
3: Yeah. um, You know, I think if you wrote a book that said, America's divided, everyone would say, well, what else is new? (laughs) I mean, of course, Uh, we know that we know that what I wanted to do is write a book that said a couple of things to explain to we to explain to people why we're so divided, why it's not getting any better, and what could happen if it doesn't. So that was basically the purpose, because everyone sort of has a pet theory that says we're divided because of social media, or we're divided because the, you know, we have a bad political class, or we're, you know, and you you have these sort of like competing ideas where someone latches onto this one thing and says it's this one thing that is dividing us so much and essentially what my book says is it's all the things that there's no single cultural political or religious force that is pulling americans together more than it's pushing us apart i mean we all know how divided politics are we know how much they're marked by animosity and enmity um we know that america is secularizing for example but it is not becoming a secular nation. This is a really important thing to explain to people. It's becoming very secular and remaining very religious at the same time so that the cohort of Americans who are among the most religious Americans is maintaining its, new, its numbers or maybe even growing somewhat in absolute numbers. And so are the, But the cohort of people who are very secular is growing dramatically as well. The people who are kind of being cut out of the equation, what you might call the more nominal believers. And so what's ending up happening is America is becoming very secular and remaining very religious at the same time, but not in the same places. So, you know, here I am in Franklin, Tennessee. And if I drive just a few, a couple of miles out of my neighborhood, it's hard to it's hard to be in a place where I don't see a megachurch, at least in my peripheral vision. Like they're just everywhere. But if I'm in a place like San Francisco, a lot of you might go if you're from Nashville or the greater Nashville area, you might say, Where'd all the churches go? Um, and so you really have this really different geography of division. And people are sorting into this these different geographic areas where they're around people of like mind and like belief. So that divides us. Geography divides us. Politics divides us. What about culture? Culture divides us. We have a real issue. Uh, we talked just now about like Ted Lasso. Well, I wonder how many people have seen Ted Lasso compared to like who saw you know, a big show on NBC 30 years ago on a Thursday night, probably only a tiny fraction. We have really fractured our watching and our listening so that we don't have common cultural experiences that much. Even if you look at the most popular shows, they fall down, the viewership falls down on, or falls on along um, political lines. So take the most popular show on premium cable for years and years and years, Game of Thrones. If you look at the viewership map for Game of Thrones, it's the Hillary voting map from 2016 or the uh, Biden voting map from 2020. If you look at The Walking Dead, you know, this zombie apocalypse uh, show that's a sort of a walking advertisement for the Second Amendment. um, It has a ton of conservative viewers. NBA basketball, blue, college football, red. I mean, I literally go to places and you guys will appreciate this as, I'm assuming you get you're mainly in the Nashville area. Okay, everybody's nodding, so you'll you'll appreciate this, as fellow Greater Nashvillians. I will go to places and I'll say the name Nick Saban, and people will not know who I'm talking about. And I'm like, the, oh, wow. do you not know the Darth Vader of college football? I mean. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, as a Tennessee fan, I could only be so lucky to not know, oh, who I know. Nick Saban. Is. I, know. The, as I I was born in Auburn. You know, the only consolation that I have is that Auburn is the only team that can beat Nick Saban on a semi-regular basis. So, so we don't have the same beliefs. We don't live in the same places. Uh, we don't have the same culture, um, and nothing is changing that all of those trends are accelerating and then when you lay on top of it we have huge animosity towards people on the other side we don't look at say progressives in san francisco if you're a conservative in tennessee with the same sort of like harmless affection that we look at with say progressives in toronto <laughs> you know you can go visit toronto and you're like oh they're nice eh you know and um, you go to san francisco and you're like i don't want these people running our our country And so, you know, we don't have an atmosphere of affection across our differences. We have an atmosphere of increasing animosity across our differences. So what's dividing America? Everything. Everything that's important.
1: Well, David, just a side note before we get into the next question. I tell my husband often, I miss my buddy Ted Lasso. (laughs) Oh, it was so delightful. It was. The show was so delightful. There's a
3: moment in there. Uh, so I've I've seen it through twice already. I'm not going to spoil anything, but all I'm going to say is there's a moment in there that shows the power of forgiveness in a like makes you choke up kind of way. like Like literally takes your breath away moment that shows the power mm-hmm. of forgiveness.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the power of kindness. He changes people's lives because of it anyway. It's so good. Y'all need to watch it. Just keep the caveats in mind. So one of the many interesting things about your book, as well is that you walk the reader through a couple of secession scenarios, um, laying out in surprising detail circumstances that you imagine could send America in this direction. So are we really to the point now where these scenarios are plausible? And if so, do we as Christians have a role in preventing this?
3: Well, so when I wrote my book... Um, I was actually nervous about those chapters because I thought, um, this is really kind of make or break, to be honest, because what I do in the book, it has three sections. Section one is why we're divided and why it's not getting better. Section two is how we can split apart, which are two fictionalized scenarios, one involving a blue state secession and one a red state secession. And part three is how we can heal. And so nice, you know, it's almost like sermon symmetry, right? Right three parts. Here we go. Approximately equal length. But that was, I was very nervous about that because I, I, I believed that I wasn't saying this could happen tomorrow. Okay. But what I was saying is if we don't change these trends, these are realistic scenarios. And the response I've gotten from readers, by and large, and especially on the tech, on the uh, California scenario, a number of readers have said, it took me a while to realize I was reading something fictional. Like they were like, wait, when did this happen? Holy smokes! Uh, because it connected with our current politics very directly, and the issues that swirl around our current politics very directly. Now, I will say this: the election season in the United States has made me only more concerned. It's more concerned now. I'll I'll give you very concrete something very concrete. Um, the Texas. Uh, uh, attorney general has filed an election contest in the Supreme Court. 17 attorneys general have signed on to this. Now, I don't know when this podcast will air, but that's going to lose. Uh, it will lose nine to zero. I'd be shocked if it doesn't lose nine to zero. But let's pretend they don't lose. Let's pretend they get what they want. What they would get is the probable reversal of the outcome of the presidential election which would place the union under immense strain, immense strain, because one of two things would happen. If the legal analysis and reasoning applies, if the Supreme Court adopts the legal analysis and reasoning uh, that Texas is asking for, California could sue Texas to get all of Texas's votes tossed because Texas did some of the same things that they are accusing the other states of doing unconstitutionally. And so that's dangerous. That's dangerous, you know? And so what's what's ending up happening is that we're in a position, in a situation where um, we're having actual political actors asking for, going to the Supreme Court to ask for results and rulings that could literally fracture the union. And I never, I, when I wrote my book, I did not think, oh, we could be facing things like that in December, 2020. I was thinking if we don't change this by 2024, by 2028, you know, we could begin to have some real issues. But, you know, we're, you know, Rush Limbaugh yesterday was talking about secession as a viable possibility. And he's still the biggest radio host in the land. I mean, so I'm incre- ever since I wrote my book, I'm increasingly alarmed.
0: Yeah, and that uh, that is certainly concerning because it it seems uh, for you know your average American, uh, the question of the legitimacy of secession was uh, was answered about 160 years <laughs> right. ago. I have to say, you know, you're you're talking about those two chapters. One is the Cal exit, and the other is the Texit. I agree with those folks who have talked to you. I mean, a you need to be a fiction writer <laughs> uh, because they they were just so engrossing, uh, and they're really close to life. I mean these these things are not uh, that that seemingly far away, and um, and so yeah, you've got a, a gift in in that area as well. And you know, you mentioned this uh, this lawsuit, and I just have to say it when the news cycle gets just that captivating, I mean, it just seems like every time you open up uh, whatever your favorite social media app is, there's some sort of new, humongous, unprecedented breaking news. And folks can just get engrossed in that and and kind of find their identity in it. And that that kind of leads to our our last question here. So most Christians, uh, we recognize that the world of politics is important and it's an area where we are called to be engaged. uh, But I think it also is a place, a person's political affiliation, or the partisanship uh, that they want to engage in, if we're not careful, it can become the definitive marker of an individual's identity, a phenomenon that you talk about in chapter seven of your book. So as a Christian believer yourself, how do you personally ensure that your political views and philosophy do not override the theological foundations of your Christian
3: faith? Yeah, that's a Really interesting question. Um, and I, and just to tell, give make people a concrete to people how powerful political identities are becoming. One of the things that I talked about in the book is you will have people of the exact same religious beliefs, exact same, and they will call themselves an evangelical or not based on their political affiliation. You will have people of the exact same ethnicity And they will call themselves Hispanic or not based on their political affiliation. Like, so what ends up happening is for some individuals, the political identity is the meta identity and everything else is going to be. uh, Now, this is not everybody's involved in politics. This is people who are super involved. But we are we're beginning to have a class of people in this country where the politics is the meta identity. All right. So how do you deal with this? Um, you know, I, in the book, I end the book. It, it's not a Christian book in the sense of this is, this is book and not a book written exclusively for Christian audiences. But I end the book with Micah 6.8. And, and to me, the three interlocking obligations of Micah 6, eight. and this is what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? It is to act justly. It is to love mercy or kindness, depending on the, uh, the translation act justly, love kindness, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. And think about this in your life, in your life of the people who are most unhealthily consumed by politics. You know, and I know we all know people who are unhealthily consumed by politics. In my case, I might see that person in the mirror. <laughs> um, we all know those people who are unhealthily consumed with politics. And ask yourself of those people you know who are, who are so consumed by politics, how many of those three interlocking obligations do you see manifested in their lives? Well, a lot of them, you'll see the act justly where they're seeking, ju- they're seeking, this is what I have decided and I know to be just and right, and I'm pursuing it with every fiber of my being, but you won't find much kindness and you certainly don't find humility. And so, one of the things that I think really can help you sort of back down from that. And, and I'm actually going to be teaching a course on this, on, on a political, a, a path past polarization for Christians, uh, in at Covenant College, the spring semester, at one credit course, it's just short three days. And I'm going to go through Micah six eight backwards, humility, mercy, then justice. And the reason why is I think that we've gotten the we we have so emphasized the seek justice. That we have de emphasized the other two. So I think my own view is that one of the things that helps us a ton to preserve relationships, to preserve kindness, to preserve our culture is to walk into politics and say this This is hard. I don't know all the answers. I can't know all the answers. That's it. Just start like that. This is hard. I don't know all the answers. And I can't. Know all the answers. And then when you walk into every major political problem of the US and you begin with that, doesn't mean you don't act justly. It doesn't mean you don't seek justice, but it's a transformative framework. Think of it like this in dealing with race, for example, we had 345 years from slavery to Jim Crow of legally enforced racial discrimination defended by violence that impacted every aspect of American society for black Americans. How do you undo the effects of 345 years of racial discrimination defended by violence? This is hard. (laughs) I don't know all the answers. I can't know all the answers, but I have to try. Okay, that's the act justly, right? And then because this is hard and I don't know all the answers and I can't know all the answers, I'm going to be kind to those people who disagree with me. I'm going to be merciful for to my political opponents because this is difficult. This is hard. They're human beings created in the image of God who don't know all the answers and can't know all the answers themselves. And I think that walking into politics from that standpoint, um, I think it really transforms your outlook. And it doesn't mean you can't have righteous anger sometimes. Sometimes there are things that are so plainly wrong that it's not hard to say that it's wrong. And you should be angered uh, and you should have righteous outrage, but that shouldn't be our default. And the last thing I'll say is one of the best pieces of advice that I got from a um, in, in my career was from a, a retired federal judge who said, David, write and speak with regret, not outrage. Um, that our tone is should not be dominated by outrage. What, what's the old line from um, The Incredibles? When everyone is super, nobody is, or something like that. When everything's an outrage, nothing is. Um, so you husband, you you uh, conserve your outrage. You limit your outrage um, for the things that are truly outrageous, which often, once you understand that Micah 6-8 framework, is uh, encompasses fewer things than you might imagine. Gosh, David, that is uh,
2: that is such a good word. And thinking about you know all the things we talked about today, from uh, pop culture to politics, that this podcast is for Christians who are concerned about engaging culture and are, are engaged in, in following all of this. And so, hearing this, I mean, there's echoes of the stuff that that our boss, Doctor Moore, talks about all the time about just convictional kindness, about being Christians who absolutely have convictions and are willing to step into the public square uh, with you know with their faith commitments and to to try. Try to live out that Micah 6-8 mentality, but but always to to be in the public square as Christians. And so we want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. We hope people will take the opportunity to pick up your book and read it. Uh, it has been uh, really—I mean, it's just—it's incredible, and uh, there, there's a great challenge before us, and I think Christians can, can make a huge difference. So we really appreciate you taking the time and putting all the effort into writing that book.
0: Easily one of the best books of the year. Like, your book and Yuval Levin's book— uh, I, those are my two favorite books of
3: 2020. Oh, well, man, you're way too kind. Thank you very much.
0: So now it's time
2: for the lunchroom, where every week we're telling you about the things that we're talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind.
1: Well, I don't have a life hack like I've been trying to do lately, but I do have a recall called Why We Plan to Get Vaccinated, A Christian Moral Perspective, I think is really helpful. It's by our former colleague, Andrew Walker, uh, Matthew Arbo, and then Dr. Mitchell, Ben Mitchell, who we have talked about on today's episode. So I just, I I know there are lots of questions around getting vaccinated. And this article from these three ethicists who are fabulous, they're level-headed, they love the Lord, and they're sound, uh, theologically is very helpful, and I would, I would ask you to consider reading it. It's they deal with the safety and efficacy of it, they deal with uh, complicity and compliance, just different topics, and Christian discipleship and the COVID nineteen vaccine, and um, they answer the question, you know, basically, what is our obligation to our neighbors as, as believers? So. Very helpful. I would encourage you to read this article, especially if you have questions or have people in your life who have questions about receiving this new vaccine.
2: Lindsay, that's a really good one uh, for this week, especially with all the talk about the vaccine and from these guys it is really helpful to have uh, ethical experts as, as in addition to medical experts be able to provide insight on the vaccines because uh, we, we're at the URLC. we're making this big push for them, but we know people have a lot of questions and a lot of those questions are very sincere about whether or not the vaccine is safe and whether it's morally right to use it. And so I'm really glad you highlighted that one. And that takes us to Brent. So Brent, what are you bringing to the lunchroom this week?
0: So uh, our folks may have seen Online, uh, the the new newest product released by Apple, which is AirPods, that are actually headphones that go over your head. Which I I feel like this is this is not. I feel like this is an oxymoron, right? If they're AirPods, aren't they? Are they supposed to go in your ear and not over your head? Well, anyways, they release these things. They're called the AirPods Max. And the price tag is an eyebrow-raising $549. Well, uh, you must really love that someone special in your life uh, to to get them these headphones. I mean, it's going to come with all the great uh, capabilities that folks have become accustomed to in the AirPods inner ear version. I don't even know what they're called. Um but these aren't they called pods? Isn't that the isn't that the idea? Right, they're called AirPods. So I, I guess these are just the AirPods Max. Which hey, we just we just want to make sure everybody can see them on your head. They are wireless, which I, I guess that is beneficial. But uh, yeah, I mean, six hundred dollars for headphones.
1: Well, I mean, you think, think about what the the price that we pay for our phones. And it kind of is astonishing to think about pretty much everyone I know owns a smartphone and just the wealth that we have, that we actually think of these phones as something that's required and that we we make time to get. And Apple is the same company that's convinced us to carry around like equivalent of an 8 by 10 photo frame around in our pockets and call it a phone. So they always like to do things large and in charge.
0: They do. Uh, I'm just not sure I can... I'm not sure my wallet can can take uh these headphones.
2: No, who's sure whose well, wallet I'm can I'm just
0: wondering if this is like the the moment that Apple jumps
2: the shark, you know, like I'm a very I'm pro all things Apple. I love all of their their gear, but are people really gonna pay six hundred dollars for headphones?
0: And if they do, do they really work better than, you know?
2: $100 headphones
0: no josh you're absolutely right i guess the one thing i'd point out is is apple prides itself on not necessarily being the ones to come up with the new item but just the best item so i i guess there's a market out there for headphones maybe you're you know like Lindsay's husband and you know you're kind of like a you know dj out there mixing together the latest beats you know so you gotta maybe you have to have headphones i, I don't know just saying what do you bring yeah, into the lunchroom, Josh?
2: No, I appreciate that setup, and here's, here's why. So, you know, we always talk about anniversaries, talk about big big dates in history. We talk about, like, what's going on in the culture. But look, there's, there's a thing from pop culture that we just can't miss this week, and I think this is a good place for us to end. My lunchroom this week is not going to help anyone, except it will help you laugh. I saw someone post uh, that we are right now marking the one-year anniversary of that infamous Peloton ad. You guys remember this? Peloton Girl? Like, and it, it was a huge thing that became like this uh, cultural flashpoint where there were all kinds of conversations from everything from like, would, would you use this machine, which seems pretty practical, to like, is this some kind of structural or systemic, like, you know, bias or racism or sexism or a million other things? It was just,
0: you well, know, a totally I just remember bizarre, asking. Well, I just remember, I remember in the moment saying, why would you ever spend this much money on something to work out at home? Sure. Who would ever need that? Right. Who would ever need that?
2: Like, when would, why wouldn't you just go to a gym? And, you know, looking back on it, you go, hey, who knew we were going to go into a global pandemic where having like an excellent one-stop shop for exercise would have been a really great investment? Imagine Imagine if you had like gotten on the Peloton train a year ago where you could be right now because I can tell you some people have really taken advantage of the pandemic in terms of upping their fitness game. I am not in that category. I put on and, the COVID uh, 30. <laughs> some some this is I've been calling it the corona and uh it's it's time to it's time to break out of this malaise and
0: you know, get to work. So, well, I mean, we should point out to, though, just as a reminder for our listeners, uh Lindsay's pregnant, and uh, Josh, you're that's not. Right, <laughs> you're right, not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but hey, props so, to you, Josh.
1: You only look like it, Josh. <laughs> ah, just oh. kidding. Ah. <laughs>
0: Hey, no, right, props so you, to you, Josh, because the I, other I, the other night you and I were texting back and forth and you didn't respond for a while, raising concern that maybe something had happened to you. And no, you were out jogging. Like, that's great, man. I only run yeah, when man. a bear is chasing me.
1: Exactly. That's the only good reason to run. Well, since,
2: since Lindsay like called me pregnant earlier, I'm going to have to just say I did, um, <laughs> I did run a half marathon on Saturday, so it's not, it's not Ooh, that bad. nice. Anyway, uh, so for Peloton Girl, uh, that, I think that's a pretty good place to close our show today. We want to say thanks so much for listening every week and supporting the podcast. If you want to help spread the word, you can share this episode on social media or go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a review. You can find links to all the things we talked about today in our show notes. And for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week with more content.